Let's start. Uh, welcome to Edge Group Podcast. This is episode number, what episode, Nabil? Six. Six. And uh, our next guest was supposed to be in episode five, because that was his number, although I remember him more as 45. Uh, but it took so long to, to get him on the podcast, but we, we, we finally have him. Uh, give it up for Colin Edwards, the Texas Tornado. What's up, fellas? <laughs> so, <laughs> so first of all, thank thank you for um, joining and showing up on our tiny little podcast. We have about we have about two and a half listeners, uh, but after this interview, I'm sure we're going to have at least three. At least three. At least Absolutely. three. <laughs> so let me go over your bio for people that don't know you. Uh, you started racing at the age of three and a half. Uh, by the time you were eight, you had over 250 trophies on JR50s, KX60s, and KX80s. I hope I'm getting that right. And YZ80s, and yeah, yeah. <laughs> YZ's a big thing in there. You got to go with the Yamaha at the end. Uh, of course, of course. <laughs> uh, won a record five events at Daytona's Race of Champion 1991. Uh, won eight Wira championships in 1991. Uh, that's that's like almost every every category they have, right? Well, I would have won eight at Daytona, but I was on the second wave of the start for the three that I didn't win. So, yeah, it was kind of a bummer. We didn't do any qualifiers, so we signed up. It was like, you're on the second wave. I was like, well, that's fucking bullshit. <laughs> Um, but anyways, uh, yeah, I didn't win those three. So, so before we go on, we decided tonight that, um, every time you say a curse word, we're going to have a drink. All right, let's go. So, okay. All right. So, um, what are you drinking? It's captain and water. It's like a lot of captain and a little bit of water. Okay. All right. And I got here a McAllen estate. Ooh, nice. Fancy. Very so nice. Me- what do you have? Be sharing. What do you have, Nabil? I have a tequila that I'm gonna go get right now, actually. <laughs> while you, you while you serve oh, yourself. Go for it. Are you saying we're gonna go wait for it. you, you or am I, am I gonna this edit this out? <laughs> All right. So I'm taking my first drink here. All right, fire away. I already took one, but I'll take another. (laughs) Here we go. I was actually on a business call, so I jumped straight into that from a business call, and I couldn't quite have the bottle of tequila with me. Nabil's a (laughs) big business guy. Well, if I was a big business guy, I wouldn't have to have calls. (laughs) And I'm just a gigolo, so whatever, whatever pays the bills. Uh, <laughs> so you turned pro in 1992 and started racing World Superbike in 1995 with Yamaha. Moved to Honda in 1998. Uh, you are three times uh, Suzuka 8-hour winner, 1996, 2001, and 2002. What, which one was with Rossi? I think it was... 2001. Okay. We should have won it in 2000, but he crashed. So I was trying to make up time and then I crashed and then it was all fucking over after that. So it was like, we were just circulating. So we had to 
He didn't want to come back a second year. He was like, dude, we just win it this year. And we go home. Dude, because dude. it was in his contract with Honda. And uh, he ended up tipping over. And so we had to come back for the second year. Dude, I didn't, I didn't want to say it because I, I, I was going to be nice. But you carried that guy's career. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, one 31 races in World Superbike. Uh, 2000 World Superbike Champion, 2002 World Superbike Champion. Holds the records for the most points in a single season with 552 points in 2002, breaking... Now I gotta scroll to the right. Breaking the previous record of 489 points set by Carl Fogarty, the guy that I never I never know what he's talking about. I can't, I just can't understand him. I don't know what it is. <laughs> <laughs> uh, set by Carl Fogarty in 1999, winning nine straight races. Uh, raced MotoGP for 11 years with 12 podiums and three pole positions. Fin in 2013, finished fourth overall at the Baja 1000 with a time of 30 hours and 38 minutes. And and I I looked I looked up online the pictures and there's a picture of you twisting your nipples. What what was that? Yeah, I don't know. It was uh, that was after my first stint, and it was a San Felipe whoops, and I was I was cross-eyed and like dumb to the world. I just uh, I was ignorant to be honest. I, I had I didn't have any fuel. I had I was like eh, just being a dumbass, but uh, somehow somebody got a picture of it. <laughs> There's a lot of weird and cool stuff of you online doing some crazy things, um, giving crazy interviews. Uh, which, which one was it? The one where you played a cop and, and you went around Yamaha trying to make sure everybody does Oh, uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, that was so Bob Starr at Yamaha. He, uh, he had these ideas, like just some, some uh, spoof things that we could do to kind of bring, you know, product and Yamaha into light and have some fun ideas. And, uh, yeah, the, the cop was the one year. Then the next year we did with Eddie Lawson and Wayne Rainey and kind of the back to the seventies. And so it was always something that, uh, that Bob had in his mind and it was, it worked out. It was fun. <laughs> it was really, really funny. And the mancation with Ben Spees, oh, we yeah. had that one as well. So, and, <laughs> Dude, funny story about the mancation. I flew out of here at like, I don't know, 7 a.m. Ben was an hour later than me. We shot that whole video in one day at Vegas, and we were back in Texas that night. <laughs> we, we, had him, we had him on a podcast, and we asked him your question. We didn't, we didn't tell him who asked that question, but he, he kind of went like, yeah, it's Colin. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> uh, she was gagging for it, and he was like, "Man, I can't. I don't know. Can't do it. Can't do it." <laughs> yeah, he said it. He said it. It, it, it didn't happen, but uh -huh. but he smiled. Uh -huh. So I don't know. I didn't want to. I didn't want to get him in trouble with his wife. <laughs> mm -mm. He was very discreet about this whole thing. Yeah, or trying to be. <laughs> How did you get the nickname the Texas Tornado? Okay, so that's kind of a weird story. Um, I think uh, uh, Carruthers that run uh, Cycle News, um, he was, I think he nicknamed me the 
teenage terror from Texas. And anyways, I was kind of writing a couple articles to send into them at, at some point. And then next thing you know, I wasn't 19. I was 20. So uh, somebody, some, I don't know the, I don't even know where it came from. Somebody had said Texas tornado. So I just kind of picked it up and said, okay, Texas tornado. That sounds good. I kind of like that. And, and it stuck. I, I, I honestly cannot coin somebody for, for nicknaming me that it just kind of somebody had said it somewhere and it just kind of stuck. That's the best kind of nickname, right? Where everybody goes like, yep, he's the yeah. Texas Tornado. <laughs> uh, how did you get the call from Yamaha to go race World Superbike? Did they see you ride the Vance and Hines machine and win those races at the end of the season and want to bring you to the next level? Or, or did you ask them for a chance to prove yourself? Okay, so that's a good story, too. Um I had already signed another two-year contract to race for Vance and Hines uh, for 95 and 96. Um, and I had it signed. But then Yamaha World-ish uh, Japan said they'll pay the bill. Uh, they're going to pay for Yasutuma Nagai. They're going to pay his salary. Yamaha, we're going to pay U.S. We're going to pay my salary. And Yamaha Europe, we're going to make the bikes arrive and kind of have the workshop and, and, and invest there. So it basically was a world team. Like everybody was putting in for the bill. Um, and they had asked me to be part of it and Terry Vance and, you know, over there Vance and Hines were like, we're, we're not going to hinder your career. So absolutely you do what you got to do. Um, so, it was basically a conglomerate of a bunch of a bunch of nations that kind of chipped in to 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 make it happen, and that's how that happened. So it was uh, yeah, it was good. It was funny, and we were our shit wasn't right. We didn't have our shit together. We were all we were all figuring it out, you know. Um, Kobe just had the earthquake at Dunlop, so our tires were kind of more English based than Japanese based, and we suffered a little bit on that. Um, but it was, uh, it was a good team. It was great. It was awesome. I mean, it, 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 it was such a learning curve. Yeah. You seem to learn and have fun wherever you go. So, um, I'm happy yeah. about that. Uh, what was your relationship what with the kind of fun stories? Oh. Sorry. Go ahead. What was, was your ask about <laughs> fun stories during world Superbike? <laughs> fun stories. I'm sure he's got, he's got a ton. Oh, I got to, uh, dude, you, you, you got to be more, uh, more clear on that. I got a shit ton. <laughs> <laughs> the ones that didn't, about, didn't end up in the hospital or in a police station. There's not no. that many. <laughs> uh, no, honestly, I, I'm not going to lie to you. Superbike was, um, World Superbike was probably the most fun, to be honest, uh, racing motorcycles. Uh, we would all kind of gather like Indians, you know, kind of gather the wagons and kind of park with who you want and make a little circle. And we'd all barbecue in the middle. And um, 
me and and Crafer and Gobert and uh, I don't know. Uh, it it was just fun times. You know, there were there were no limits. Nobody really told you what to do or what you couldn't do. Um, it was kind of limitless, which were sometimes we got in trouble with that, but. Uh, yeah, didn't didn't the, Goldberg the uh, Superbike days? The World Superbike days were awesome. They were fun. It was just more of you do whatever the fuck you want to do. Uh, and then uh, once uh, you get uh, GP, kind uh, of is a drink. Oh, oh, there you go, another drink. <laughs> <laughs> no, but once you got to Grand Prix, it was just different. It was just more business. Okay. What was what was your relationship with the Ducati guys with Bostrom and Foggy in, in particular? In particular Bostrom. Oh, Bostrom was awesome. No, I mean once he came, um I remember I mean I had known known Ben for forever and I remember sending him a a, a text back then. I mean that was a different phone. It was like you you had to like the Texting was different then. It's not like it is today. Blackberries. People that are going to watch this and be like, what's <laughs> Blackberries, um, right? But, yeah, it was, yeah, Blackberries and, and Motorola's. Um, but uh, I remember sending him a text saying, hey, bring your golf clubs because, you know, when we have time, he was like, and I don't golf, uh, which I had golfed with him before. And he got into climbing, like climbing mountains and like big mountains. So I was like, okay, well, we can try that too. So once he got over, uh, we basically, Carl Muggridge, me, Ruben's house, uh, Ben, or, or, or yeah, uh, Bostrom, and we all got into climbing. So it, it was basically the day before we were going out to practice, we're trying to find a mountain. And we're all traveling together in a car. We got our backpacks and our chalk bags and little tiny ass shoes. And we're all climbing a mountain. So it was, it was a moment in time, which was awesome. I'm glad I did it. My wife did not like it whatsoever. She hated it, but <laughs> we would all travel as couples and go do stuff. Uh, we went to Sardinia once for seven days and all we did is climb and, and, and to finish this story about the climbing is, uh, I, I noticed I started getting arm pump, right? So I, I, I've never gotten arm pump in my entire life. And I noticed I started getting arm pump like halfway through a race. And uh, I was like, shit, all I'm doing different is climbing. So I was like, maybe I need to stop climbing. <laughs> and so I stopped climbing and my arm pump went away. And I had said to Ben Bosch, I was like, Bro, are you getting arm pump when you're running? Oh, yeah, yeah. But I love climbing. <laughs> and I was like, <laughs> but are you going to stop climbing? No, I love climbing. It was like, bro, this is, I don't know. Just the conversation to me was weird. Like, this is what's paying the bills. But I love climbing, so I'm going to continue to climb. I don't know. Anyway, that's kind of how it went. I don't think the boss rooms care about money that much. They don't. They really don't. Uh, that's why I love them. They don't give a shit. <laughs> yeah, I, you went like, yeah, exercise makes me, you know, makes me not want to, you know, race well. And so let me just stop exercising, just drink more, eat more barbecue and shoot more guns. And that worked. 
<laughs> well, it's weird. It's like, I don't know how to explain this. Um, you know, I worked at Randall's, which is a grocery store here. I sacked groceries uh, when I was a kid. Um, but then I, if, if anybody is watching this that can take anything out of this, um, the best thing to do for your kid is to take all the choices away, right? So kids nowadays have so many choices. They can, they can stay on their iPhone all day. They can sit in a shitter and look at their iPhone for two hours. They, you know, you can do whatever you want. You have so many choices. But where I'm going with this is all my choices were taken away, basically. It was either try to figure out how to make a living or take this two-wheel talent and try to figure out something to do with it. So once I had all my choices taken away and I found road racing, that was the only choice, right? There was only one direction. Yeah. So it actually became super easy when your choices are taken away so and i've had this conversation multiple times lately with you know we have ttmx the the here at boot camp the motocross side and we got a lot of kids that come out here and it's like and the parents are asking how do you get how did you get to where you're at and i'm like you just take if you take the choices away like it's super easy um but i think maybe that was back in the 90s like nowadays, if you take choices away, they're going to find something else to dilly dally and procrastinate about. You know, I don't, I don't know how to explain that correctly, um, but it's a different generation. In my time, I had my choices taken away. There was one direction and that was it. So it was it was easy. Yeah, yeah, I, th I think you're absolutely right. If I read today that you know the first the first Gen Z was elected for office, right? And and uh, and, and I dove into it, and obviously you know is a is a progressive, right? So it's it's a different generation. They don't understand reality. Their reality is a little little off, right? They don't understand how money works. Yeah. They don't they don't understand how working for a living works. They don't understand what happens when you don't have enough money and you, and you know there's no safety net, right? I was working with the same no safety net when I came to the U.S., right? I came by myself, and if you don't get a job, you don't eat, you don't get to live anywhere, right? They don't have that type of experience. Well, because they have us to go. Yeah, and, then, and then now, I mean, hell, if you got a college debt, government just pay your shit and get you out of it, which is fucking ridiculous. Yeah. But I don't know. Yeah. I agree with you. My whole motto, like you're talking about, you work your ass off, you make money. The more you work, the harder you work, the more you make, the better you get. So, but it's just a different generation. I don't, I don't get it. Yeah. I, I, I really yeah. do not comprehend what's going on. It's yeah. I mean, we're not teaching them responsibility with all these programs. That's for sure. But that's very insightful what you said. Funny enough, my call just before this one, we're talking to a group of CEOs, and one of the big guys there said, "If you want freedom, strategy, control, and value creation in a company, either you have a lot of capital to go and buy companies and put money in, or you have nothing to lose. And when you have nothing to lose, it's a heck of a motivator. You have no other choices. 
you have to get good at what you're doing or you're dead. And these are the two choices and it, it it's a heck of a motivator, no doubt. Yeah. Yeah. I I kind of like I kind of like the strategy of you might lose everything. That makes sense. That makes you work harder. And that every time I got on a plane and flew to a different country, I never knew if I was coming back. And I, that was some kind of high. I don't know, not a high, but it was just what I lived on. It's like I would get on a plane and go to a country without my family. I'm like, I might not come back. I don't know. But when you live in that realm of, of life, it's a it's a, it's a it's a really 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 fun place to live because it's such a high you don't know if you're going to come back you might come back you might not come back um but it's such a good place to live to find out who you really are i don't know i don't really know how to explain this correctly you, i've you, been trying to explain this to my son because he's motocrossing and it's like you have to live in an area that you might not be here tomorrow. And if you live there, then you, we can extract the most out of you. I don't know how that makes sense, but that's how it makes sense to me. It, it makes sense. And it's also a stage of your life, right? As, as soon as I started accumulating shit, right? Let's take a drink. <laughs> you start- I'll go another. You start going, okay, I'm responsible for, you know, another life, right? I'm responsible for a dog, right? I'm responsible for a girlfriend. I'm responsible for people that are renting a house from me, right? I'm, I'm responsible and I can't not be here tomorrow, right? So if, if I'm going to die today, there's a whole bunch of people that are going to be, you know, fucked tomorrow, Right. And that's that's another stage of your life that, you know, you just can't do the things you did when you were 20 anymore. Yeah. 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 But I mean, shit, I retired at 40, you know, so I mean, it, I lived that for a long time. I mean, I had kids. Um, I don't know how to explain it. I mean, obviously, they say when you get married, you lose half a second When you have a kid, you lose half a second. You know, this is kind of a. You can go through history and look at guys throughout that have had got married and had kids and slowed down. And I agree with that a little bit, but you're living in a different realm than most folks. I don't know how to explain it. You're, you're, you're living somewhere else. And, and it's that little, that little sharp edge that kind of keeps you alive. Yeah. I would argue Rossi lost like two seconds, but uh, who's counting? Um, so <laughs> Ross, Rossi this, lost two seconds from all the thanks. pizza he ate in his place in his <laughs> restaurant. <laughs> no, but, but but this makes sense, and, and I've heard that in business, and I've heard it in life, and we're hearing it from from a, a world champion. Um, something that would make a fantastic Con Edwards book on this is. Some some of us arrive at it by circumstances, right? You have no other choice. Life puts you in a situation where that's your 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 only choice, or you've put all your marbles in that bag and 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 you're gambling it all, right? And and your only choice is to succeed. Uh, 
Is there a way you think where people can create this? We, we often ask people who get on the podcast, like, how do you create this champion mentality? Or how do you create that drive? And, and uh, you know, certainly having no other choice is a big drive, but can you create that in, in any circumstance or do you kind of have to have life throw at you a certain set of a situation where that's your only choice? What do you think? Man, that is the greatest fucking question you could have asked. I'm not lying. That I'm dealing with that right now. I mean, honestly, that is the greatest question because my son is fast as shit. Um, but the fact that we have money and that we're a little bit entitled, you know, and that I can, we can have new bikes tomorrow. I don't think that's the best thing. I don't know how to explain this to you correctly. Um, but there's something in somebody in anybody. It's a heart and it's a drive. Honestly, drive. I, I, I heart a hundred percent, but some people just have this drive that you cannot stop. Um, and some people have a heart where the drive is not there. So in my own opinion, I had heart, I had drive, I knew where I wanted to go. There was nobody going to stop me. But it's nowadays with the generation we're in, I think it's so easy to kind of, uh, well, that didn't work. Let's do something else, you know? And I'm trying my ass off to instill in my kid my morals and my values and my the way of thinking of there's no give up. You just, you, you, that's heart, it's drive, um, and it's a goal. And if you set yourself a goal, you just accomplish it. There's no if, ands, or buts. You just accomplish your goal. Yeah. Just, just tell them you lost all the money on NFTs and we're, we're poor now. Let's see what you can do. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. There was, I read a book, uh, Jamie Crosby, uh, Grammy Crosby wrote about his racing days. Uh, and it was kind of those crazy days. Well, they had no money. They had nothing. If, if they didn't win the race, they couldn't pay the hotel bill after they checked in. So they would check in with the hope that they win that race so they can settle their beer and walk out. And they'd party, yep. go to race, you know, break pieces, duct tape them, and win the race and come back. And, and, you can't recreate that really you know, art artificially, but I, I don't think it was that crazy during World Superbike. But you know, it's, it was still probably a lot more sketchy than teams today, and and that provided probably some of the drive too, right? No, absolutely. I mean, honestly, I grew up poor as shit. I mean, we didn't have any money. We lived in a freaking trailer. So my my dad had a Rickman seven fifty that he was his baby. He traded in for two 65s and an 80 in like 1982 or some shit. So there's something about being poor and and something about being poor. I don't know how to say it. There's something about not having everything at your fingertips that kids that I latched on to 
that I need to find my way out. You know, I need to figure out how to get the shit out, get my ass out of here and, and make some money. Uh, and that's why I struggle with what's going on right now with my kid. Like we never had that, you know, and um, I'm hoping talent kind of, I don't know, takes over, uh, to be honest. Uh, I, I don't know how that works. He, he either wants to win or he doesn't want to win. You know what I mean? It's it. It's so. Thing about that, it's like you have guys that race motorcycles, and it's the pain of losing is more excruciating than the high of winning. Does that make sense? Yeah. So, and I think once you have that, you can't get rid of it. It just is what it is. So, um, you're so unbelievably upset that you did not win. That is this, that's this big. And then when you do win, you're that happy. Does that make sense? Yeah, so yeah. it's it's weird and it, it kind of takes over your life. It's it's a lot of NLP and neuro-linguistic programming, right? Uh, what, what Tony Robbins does and, and other people do. And they just, they just try to rewire your brain in such a way that you want to win, right? You, oh, dude, you want to hear some weird shit? You just brought up t Tony Robbins. It wasn't Tony Robbins, but I, I literally was shit in 93, 94 Superbike, and I was stayed up till two in the morning one day, and I had some motivational speaker came on there, and I bought his, down his tapes, and I listened to him over and over, and the next race I went to was 94 Mid-Ohio, and I freaking won. There you go. It works. And the next race I went to was Brainerd, and I won. It works. I was like, it just rewiring your brain. And he was talking about committing. Take, take, can't, uh, try, hope, uh, won't. Like, take these words out of your dictionary and just replace them with, I'm gonna, you know, instead of, yeah. I'm maybe. So, you take those words out of your dictionary and I went and won three freaking races. The last four, I was like, okay, this works. Just rewire your brain. That's all you got to do. It's all between your ears. Yeah. And that's where I'm at with my son. Exactly the same thing. <laughs> give him those tapes. Because he's it, fast it, as shit. It's like, bro, it's in your brain. Get, give give him those tapes. See, see if he can figure out how to play them. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> yeah. If you have a tape recorder still. <laughs> go, What's that, Dad? I, I, saw I don't his, have a tape player. Yeah, I saw the <laughs> Guardians of the Galaxy. Do they still make those? <laughs> yep. All right. Motorcycle question. Um, you raced with Yamaha and Honda. So, what's the main differences uh, in the effort between Yamaha and Honda in World Superbike? Uh, budget, development cycles, uh, writer input. Okay. They go about That's it in, in a very Japanese way, but they're both Japanese. There's still a difference. That's a great question. Um, I raced for Yamaha uh, 95, 96, 97. 
Honda 98 through 2002. The difference is, like, number one, Yamaha. I could start fifth and finish third and I got a pat on the back. Good job. You're doing great. Awesome. Um, Honda, I could crash in the first turn and pick the bike up. And if I didn't win, there was no pat on the back. So it's, it was such a different, and I'm not saying anything bad about Yamaha. Don't get me wrong. I love Yamaha. I will be Yamaha till the day I die, but it's just the mentality of we're all doing good. Everybody's okay. Yeah. Yeah. Good job. Good job. Good job. Good job. And it actually took Honda, I think, to bring me to where I got. Because I would do a race and I like my, I remember my first few races at Honda and finished third or fourth. And they were like, eh. I was like, what do you mean? Eh. Like, man, I finished on the podium, but nobody was happy. Nobody was happy. I was like, okay. First race I won was like, Okay, good job. That was it. Yeah, you're expected not to win. Like, not like crazy. Oh, woo! It's like, oh, good job. So I started understanding kind of that term, even keel. You know, don't get too low when you're low. Don't get too high when you're high. Just kind of stay, stay there. Uh, Honda kind of taught me that. Uh, and all they really wanted to do was win. That was it. That was the only acceptable. Part. It, it was, you finish second, eh, whatever. Eh, we'll get them next time. Uh, but Honda was basically you win. That's it. So it taught me a lot. And I, like I'm saying, I'm not saying anything bad about Yamaha. Yamaha loved to compete and do all that. But it was just a completely different mentality back then. Yeah. Honda is not going to give you a, an eight place trophy right no no <laughs> it was i think it all came from enzo ferrari right that that behavior of you're expected to win and any, yeah. anything less i mean it, it came it was also ducati and and it kind of went to honda and and, and uh it, it kind of proved in, itself i mean they had duhan for for many years and and rossi before he switched and they were used to just winning and What do you mean you're not winning? Come on. We yeah, I feel like, honestly, I feel like Honda have always, I never knew it. You know, I mean, I used to watch doing and all that. I never knew it. But once I got with Honda, it made more sense. It's like, hey, we're supposed to win, and that's it. There's no option. Uh, but I think in my stage of my career at that time, I needed that. You know, it's like, this is what you do. This is why we hired you. You just go out and win. Simple. And they they pretty much built whatever bike you wanted them to build, right? I mean, and the RC51, where did that come from? I mean, it's not like they were just trying to, to imitate the Ducati. I think it was from you. You went like, okay, yeah, I have no grip, right? Or something something in that style. 
Well, it's so weird. And like, I had this conversation with the Japanese at Yamaha uh, in 97. And, and they, one of the big dogs there in Japan, I'm in Japan. He goes, we could build a bike tomorrow to beat Ducati. We could build it tomorrow. So I'm thinking, yeah, let's do it. But it's kind of this yin and yang. We let them win for a minute, and then we win for a minute, and then we let Honda win for a minute, and we let Kawasaki win for it. This is kind of their, they have a word for it. I don't know what the word is, but it's, it's sucky. You kind of let you kind of let everybody circulate around to to have their moment of glory, you know. Which I never knew that about the Japanese culture. I didn't know that, um, but it, it it's reality. Um, so then when Ducati were kicking our ass, kicking our ass, I got a Honda. Honda decided at that moment it's time for us to win because we've RC forty five is done. I mean, we can't do anything more with it. And it's a 750. So let's go with a 1,000 and let's try and compete with, you know, the guys that are actually winning. Um, no, they built a great unit. I mean, it was a it was a great bike. It was probably one of the best race bikes. The SP1 in 2000 and 2001 wasn't. It was stiff. It was so stiff. We took motor mounts out. We we barely had that motor hanging in the fucking bike. I mean, it was... We had every motor mount taken out. We had every tab shimmed off so they weren't touching, so it had room to flex. And then in 2002, they built the uh, SP2, uh, and it was like 40% weaker chassis side. Um, and that's a whole different another story but it, it, that that bike was amazing yeah it's considered one of the best bikes of all time and i guess, yeah. I guess you you were, you were the guy that developed it so it, yeah it, it's yeah because of you you made it so so did you did you try and continue with a, with them as a test rider um well i guess you're with yamaha now so that's that's a moot point but they're, they're having so many difficulties with with the new uh fire blade that have they ever approached you and said, hey, can, can you help us out? No, 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 no. I mean, I've done my Yamaha test and, and I mean, it's a weird thing. It's it's actual reality. And, and I don't know if you've ever heard this, but I've heard this a million times. Um, but Honda is more like military, you know? I mean... You have your number yeah. 1405 or whatever it is on your shoulder, and that's who you are. Um, the, the, unit, and when, the unit is more important than the individual, right? And, and it turns out... Yeah, and then when, yeah. when 1405 is not doing what 1405 should be doing, then 1405 is out. So, And that's where Yamaha is completely different. There's no number. You just You know you have Yamaha on your back. So you represent Yamaha, and it's kind of more family, um, and you're you're more inclusive, and with kind of worldwide, you know, uh, like Europe, Japan, U.S., uh, Brazil, whatever. Like I know everybody in Yamaha, whereas Honda, when I signed my contract, 
it took me a minute to kind of figure out who the U.S. guy was I needed to talk to. And I figured out I couldn't get a 450 to go train on. So I went and bought one at the local dealership. It's just a weird, it's a different, yeah, it's we, two different, two different companies. We, we heard that from Josh Hayes also. And he said, uh, yeah. Yamaha for life and, and uh, yeah. Ben Spees, Yamaha for life. And I was like, no, no, you're a Suzuki guy. And he goes like, no, I'm, I'm a Yamaha guy. So, yeah, you would like but that that's Yamaha. Me. I mean, Yamaha, once you're in, once you're in the umbrella, they just, they love you they take care of you they they whatever they they, they do whatever they have to do to take care of you okay that, that's that's a good mentality yeah and and it seems to i mean it seems to be paying off for them in in world superbike in in moto america uh, they're still working on on moto gp but uh it actually is working for them moto gp or at least it did yeah. last season yeah absolutely so it's you know the family unit is is important so that i guess so you look at you look at you look at quattraro he's the only guy right now that can actually seems like ride a yamaha motor gp bike but i guarantee you that kid is not gonna leave he'll be there for the next until he can't ride or he'll be there forever because that is what yamaha is like once you're there and you're winning and you're the man, fuck whatever you want. Hmm. You're you're worldwide. Like wherever you want to go, we'll take care of you. That's good. I mean that so that's that's good. What are your thoughts, Colin, on the current bike lineup and, and the championship? Which championship? Uh, <laughs> man, I, it's honestly it's so weird to me. Because I honestly thought KTM were building steam, you know, like they were shit when they started. And I thought they had won a few races and Brad Bender and Oliveira. And I was like, okay, they're coming. But then it seems like everybody else just went like so much better. Um, and all the weird gadgets they have on the bikes now with the start and the lowering and the exit corners. And it seems like Ducati, anytime you want to talk about electronics or like shit you can do to make your bike better, Ducati, 100%. I mean, they're going to figure it out before everybody else. Um, so when you go to Austria and you look at the qualifying, you got, what, five Ducatis in the top six. Um, I don't know. And I'm telling you that Ducati was a pig. I mean, 10 years ago, it was a pig. It was nobody wanted to ride it. They paid you shit tons of money to ride it just to fucking put your ass on it. It was a pig, but now it's the best bike in the paddock. And I think we might've said that a couple of years ago, maybe thinking like it was coming, like it was the best bike in the paddock, but it 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 looks like the best bike in the paddock right now. Yeah, it, it killed Rossi's career. It killed Ben's career. So it was a career killer. Yeah. Well, and it's, you know, it's like, uh, I don't know how to explain it. It's like, hey, 
Suzuki motocross guys, you know, Hey, we'll pay you a shit ton of money. Come ride a bike, but we're not going to develop it. <laughs> so <laughs> it, you know, and that's, that's, I'm, I'm not being facetious there. It just, it is what it is. You look, you look at the facts and, but I remember Davizioso. What year did he start riding that uh, Ducati? Maybe twelve. I think so. Yeah, I'm not sure. Okay, no, wait a minute. Wait a minute. I'm not sure. Well, he rode no, the Yamaha Tech Three, so gonna, maybe it was thirteen. Thirteen. I'm, I'm gonna have to Google it. <laughs> I think it was thirteen, actually. And I remember having a conversation with Davizioso at uh, the first test, and uh, no, the last test, like the you know the test after the last race. He wrote and he was like, Oh my God, you've never ridden this thing. Dude, you have to ride it. It's such shit. It's horrible. And we were just having a friendly conversation. He's like, It doesn't fucking turn. It doesn't want to go straight. It just sucks. And, uh, but I remember having the conversation. I was like, Yeah, I don't want to ride it. It sounds horrible. Um, but, anyways, he ended up making it work, you know? It's funny because we asked Ben Spees what he thought about the Ducati, and he said, "Oh, it had, it had more power. It had a seamless gearbox. It was, uh, it was, uh, you know, might might not have turned as well as the Yamaha, but you know, he was so diplomatic." <laughs> yeah, well, it's easy to be diplomatic, but I mean, I'll tell you what you really want to keep around. <laughs> I was like, Colin Edwards going to say whatever he thinks. I'll tell you what you really want to hear. So, okay. so you think Novi deserved the credit for uh, th where the Ducati is today, for developing it that way? Who, Dovi? Is Dovizioso's credit that the, the bike got as good as it is, or who do you think was most responsible for developing it and getting it here? Because they, they wouldn't listen to Rossi. It took them forever to listen to yeah. uh, Lorenzo. I think, um, so I'm going to say yes to Vizioso. Honestly, to answer your question correctly, yes. I think, I think he had a lot to do with it. Um, but I think when, when, when Valentino was on team, Hayden, a lot of the years, um, we didn't have all the aids. Yeah, didn't have all the wings and all the shit that they have now, right? So, again, where I'm going Another is drink. if there's a new aid, yeah, I'm a drink too. <laughs> if there's an aid, if there's an aid to make your bike better, Ducati are going to figure it out first, right? So, I think we weren't there yet. Um, and they were still riding on kind of how everybody else technology uh and they weren't the best at it so once they figured out the little edge of the start device and uh yada 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 you just go down the line of all the shit they've come up with they're 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 superior it's but you gotta give them props i mean every time i would see a ducati at a track day right in 916 or 996 that you know the only time you would see them in a track day is with with the side fairing you know off the bike and the guy is just digging into <laughs> into the electronics not electronics but into into the wires right and and the bike probably has a little bit of oil on the, on the outside right so they, they went from being a joke to you know 
one of the most reliable bikes out there. Well, and it's like nobody wanted a 355 Ferrari. You yeah. know, it was like it was a hump shit, you know. <laughs> but you look at them nowadays like, eh, which I can never get away with that shit in Texas, but they're not bad vehicles now. So it's like the same shit. It's just everything it it's a continuation, it evolves and they've they've learned how to evolve, I think, a little bit quicker um and more savvy than and I honestly feel like they've kind of led the way, you know, with the start device and with the lowering of the rear out of the corners. They've kind of led the way a little bit on what everybody's doing now. So I don't know. And maybe that's why they have an advantage. Right. It, it, I, I don't know what the Germans are doing over there. I, I think they own them, but they're, they're doing something. <laughs> for sure. All right. I got another question for you. In the so 19th... Go ahead, Gal. I'll ask my questions after. All right. Uh, in the 1997 season, you had an offer to ride the Red Bull Yamaha WCM 500, and you turned it down. Why? You didn't. You didn't want to ride a 500. They're not friendly enough. <laughs> um, honestly, 97. I don't remember that. Oh, I I googled it. I was I so I broke my collarbone, wrist, and knee in Monza in '97 when John Belit Ruggia took me out. I think that was the fourth race. Um, I was out the whole season. I don't remember that offer whatsoever. Um, I do remember. You know, the internet never lies. <laughs> yeah, I don't remember that offer. To be honest with you. Uh, I do remember in 1992 when I was here on, on two fifties, uh, Kajiva called me up and said, Hey, come ride our 500. And I wanted to fulfill my contract when I was 18 years old and I wanted to fulfill my contract here with the U S and Matt Maladin went over there instead of me and continued to high side himself to the moon and break himself up. So I was kind of glad I didn't do that. Those were, yeah, those were scary bikes. Yeah, no shit. <laughs> no, I don't, I honestly, I don't remember. A, I, I Really? I don't have a, a recollection of anything to do with, uh, I probably would have jumped on that, but I was broke up that whole year. All right, let me, let me remove GP Gone from my list of <laughs> websites to read. <laughs> <laughs> All right, the Aprilia RS... So but I was oh, going to uh, ask on the tail of the other question. So do you, would you be in favor of removing all the, all the aids or at least some of the new aids and aerodynamics and bikes in GP now? Or do you think they just need to barrel down as much technology as they can? Like, you know, in the 80s when Prost and Senna were racing and the Honda had the adaptive suspension and they canceled it at the end because it was too too complex and expensive to for other teams to do. Um and that can be a barrier to entry. You can't be a, a a team without a huge budget to do these things. So wh where do you think this should go in the future? Okay. So I'm going to answer this question pretty simple uh, and quick. Is uh, The first MotoGP bike I rode was the Aprilia Cube. 
and basically your throttle was servos, right? So you had no cable, you had nothing. Basically, it was a magneto, and uh, you were twisting something, but you had three servos doing something, whatever the fuck they wanted to do, right? That was programmed. Oh, here we go, drink. Man, this McCallum is good. <laughs> so, this thing roasted you at 120 miles per hour, right? It did, yeah. I think I was doing 140 or something, but it, yeah. Um, but we got pictures of boot camp, the whole thing. Um, but it's kind of, and I've had this question throughout my career. It's like we just take all that off, um, but you can't do it. You can't do it because I'm telling you right now, you can't control. 240 260 283 whatever the numbers they're claiming right now you can't control that with your with your hand it's impossible i've tried it i said give me one to one give me everything you got and that was i did one lap and i came in i was like i'm fucking out yeah i'm out you can't do it so you need some con some electronic control that you're asking for something um but you can't control that amount of power with your, with your throttle hand. It's impossible, unfortunately. Um, but the aids, as far as, you know, your start device and your throttle control and your electronics, like, I would kind of feel deceived or, like, it would kind of hurt me if they took it away because I developed a lot of it. You know, I mean, I... I I, I spent a lot of time developing a lot of that ride by wire. Uh, so I, I, I don't think you can take it away, in my own opinion. Who did it first? The R6, right? The ride by wire. Well, the, the Cube, the, the Aprui was all ride by wire. Okay. Yeah, that was, that was my first unit. Okay, yeah, it got to the R6, I think, in 08, something like no. that. 06 or 08. Few years later yeah you just you can't live without it i mean it's, it's, yeah and it's i don't know how to explain it but the motor makes whatever power it makes and you're asking for a linear power and the motor and the brain know how to give you that power it might be built differently like the cube was but it was a piece of shit i mean that bike sucked balls but at least the electronics toned it down to where you could actually ride it. <laughs> All right. <laughs> hey, that cube, it so, would loop out in fifth gear down Magello Front Straight if you didn't have all the electronics. It would loop out. Oh, wow. Fifth gear doing 160 mile an hour. It would loop out. Yeah, you had to control it somehow. Is that the most dangerous bike you've ridden? That's the only bike I've ever ridden that I said it's going to kill me. I know it's going to kill me. <laughs> I mean, one day it's going to kill me. I had a two-year contract, and like right at the end of negotiation, I said, if I don't finish in the top 10, I can opt out. And they were like, okay, we'll give that to you. And I finished 12th. <laughs> 
and I opted out. Smart move. <laughs> so what, what was the best bike you ever raced on? Um, man, honestly, the SB2 in 2002, probably still one of my favorite bikes. Pretty easy to ride. Um, we didn't make, we, we went through like, I think 11 rear valvings in the beginning and like 20 front fork valvings. We found some good valvings and we never changed a bike. We literally would do a click here, click there. The year before with that stiff chassis, we were lowering the front, lifting the front. We were, we were doing everything to make it work for the track. That SB2, we didn't do shit. We just, it worked. You know, we still see them on, on track days, and they're doing pretty well. Like 15 yeah. years later, you know, they're, they're still out there, circling. Cir yeah, right. That bike's amazing, I'm yeah. telling So here's so, another question. Oh, I'm sorry, go ahead, Nabil. Shoot, shoot. No, go ahead, Gal. Okay, we, we're, we're, looking at the same, we're looking at the same Google Doc, so. <laughs> um, <laughs> Ross requested you as a teammate after you guys won the Suzuka 8-hour. Uh, you had a similar physical build and, and ran almost the same setup. Were you actually allowed to win or were you were there just to make him look good and support him? Uh, no. Because, it, because some of the races it looked like you were holding back for him to get a better result. And I was looking at the TV and I was, I was like, what, what is he doing? Is he, I mean, is it team orders or what's the deal? Okay. So you're talking about MotoGP right now. Yeah. Well, let's, we have two different stories going on here. Okay. Um, uh, Suzuki eight hour. Um, no, it's, we, a yeah, it's a different story. You're not the same bike at the same time. Right. But yeah. Okay. So Suzuki eight hour, he's riding my bike. Right. So he's on my bike. Um, and I had my bike dialed in, dialed in. All he wanted was, uh, he wanted titanium coated forks, the gold. And I didn't like the gold titanium coated forks. I liked, uh, the SIC silicone coated, the, the kind of gray fork, like, and he, I gotta have that, which they would blow through. I didn't like it. They just, they were super, like flowy i like silicone that kind of would stick you know in the corner i liked it better um so we went with his request you know uh a tam code or whatever um which i wasn't happy with but anyways we both were super close on settings i mean we we it was so easy bikes were same same um your second question of holding back is my contract negotiation with the boss lynn jarvis was we don't expect you to win we really don't have any intention of you winning we have our horse which is valentino we just need harmony in the paddock and you guys are friends and uh a supportive role so you have to understand when i came to grand prix shit that was oh three so it was 29 30 
31. I was already 31 when I got on the team. And yes. I got on the team because me and Valentino were friends. That's when Schwantz retired, right? Yeah. So I was already the old guy in the club, to be honest. Uh, but it worked. You know, I mean, it was, you know, there were no walls. We were all just being a supportive role. And that was my role. So, so I call. I was happy with that. I call that bullshit. Fine. I call bullshit on that. I'll tell you why. Once he once he told you you're not expected to win, he already started messing with your head. Well, it's weird because I just came off a couple world championships, adapting to a world G, uh, MotoGP bike, which was a MotoGP bike and a World Super bike are completely opposite. They're not the same units. So that little comfy-ass chair you're sitting on right now, you're sitting on a comfy chair? Yeah, it's pretty comfy. Yeah, yeah, that, yeah. that's your world supervisor, right? <laughs> you lay it out on the couch, got your ass dug in. That's a world supervisor. Hey, uh, MotoGP bike's like sitting on a freaking bar stool. That's all. That's the only. That's the best way I explain it. It just, it's not forgiving, which nowadays is different. Of course, it's a different bike nowadays. But back then, that son of a bitch, once it let loose, it was better just to let go. Don't try and save it. Your world super bike, you could kind of hang on, and stay with it. You know, I had this conversation. I, I saw I you say conversation it. with. Ben Spees. Ben Spees, when he was on my team, I was like, dude, just let go. All you got to do, when it gets bad, just let go. And he didn't let go and jacked his ankle up. Uh, I, I saw you save it a couple of times. There, there's one video of you on the internet, just lose the front and you just kept riding it. Oh, yeah. Putting it on the Jerez. knee. Yeah, Jerez 08. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. But same thing. I knew I had a new rear. I knew my front had a couple laps on it. I was already kind of prepared and I was pushing a little bit. So I kind of expected it. So, you know, I mean, you just react, you do what you do. I was, I was ahead of the game. I already kind of knew it might happen, you know? Yeah. I think if your boss and your team didn't mess with your mind, it'd be you with those world championships instead of Lorenzo. That's possible. That's, but you that's my opinion. That was, that's my opinion. Yeah, 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 and possible. Um, you know, I hit my prime, I think, at 28 when I when I won my – that's your prime. You know, your prime at 26, 28, you know, that's when I won my two world championships. When I got in the MotoGP, I was 31. So, it, it I was, I think, a little bit past my prime. I think for sure if I hadn't had that shit in my head, I could have done better, but – I was happy to do that role. I was 100% happy. I got paid a shit ton of dollars to do what they wanted me to do. Play the game. Right. So tell us some Rossi stories. You, you were a teammate, your friends. Oh, man. Um, I don't know where to start. <laughs> <laughs> Let's say, what's the most epic night out? Oh shit! Um, uh, you there? Can you hear me? We're we're drinking. Yep. Yeah, probably. 
I'm going to say France. Can't remember the year. Maybe. I don't know. We finished first, second. First, second, third. Maybe me and Jorge and Valentino. I can't remember. We finished three on the podium. All Yamahas at Lamar. And that was a big night. Yeah, we 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 got pretty pretty jacked up. But and the weird thing is, it's a weird thing. You can quote me on this shit all day long. <laughs> we were fucked. I mean, we were fucked. Next day, got a test, Monday test, third lap, break the lap record. <laughs> me. <laughs> And I'm like, I should probably get drunk every fucking Saturday. I never did. Never did. Never fucking got blasted on Saturday. But I'm like, maybe there's something to this. You found the secret Anyways, sauce. <laughs> it's just shit you think about when you're tired. It's like, maybe I should have done this shit. <laughs> it's, it's not climbing. It's drinking heavily. <laughs> hey, you're a little more loose on the bike. You have less fear yeah. factor. All your inhibitions go away. You just ride and, and haul ass and... and Yeah, I remember coming in after a few laps. You know, I did probably five or six laps at first stint, and my mechanic was like, "Why do you ride like that yesterday?" I was like, "I don't fucking know. <laughs> <laughs> I don't even know where I am." What <laughs> <laughs> What was he like as a teammate? He was good. He was good. He was awesome. Um, like I said, I mean, we were buds. I mean, we. We partied, hung out, flew on the same flights, and it was it was it was easy. It was really good. Probably the best thing about being his teammate was, um, you know, you walk out of the truck. You got the truck here. You got the garage here. So you got to walk out of the truck into the garage, or out of the garage into the truck. And every time you'd open the door, there'd be I don't know freaking 200 people there, you know, and waiting for Valentino just to see him or touch him or get an autograph. And, but you had people there that wanted my autograph too, which whatever. Um, and the door would open and, be like, ah! and I'd walk out and they go, ah, oh. <laughs> do you ever so put his helmet? Flipping pages, like, wait, let me, Let me get it. Where's he at? Where's he at? And then I'd be gone. Do you ever put his helmet on when he came out? Huh? Do you ever put his helmet on when he came out? No, shit, no. No, it was just, I just remember that. It was awesome. You'd walk out of the garage and be like, ah! Oh, it's Colin. Hey, wait, wait, Colin, wait, wait. I would put his helmet on and then take the numbers from the girls. No, it was, it was, that's one thing I do remember. And the only the other thing is we get done from practice or qualifying. I'd have my one Japanese guy there taking notes or with my mechanic. And I'd look over and he'd have 14 Japanese and I don't know. It, it was just, it was a different, it was a different element. <laughs> you had fun wherever you go. Yeah, right. that's what I was paid to do, you know, so. What happened to the CRT machines? Why did they disappear? You were a big fan of them. 
I was a big fan of them because I was getting paid to ride them. Oh, I that's what it was. <laughs> so, I mean, they were, and and it, it what should have happened in the CRT days is what's happening now. Basically, give your last year's bikes to a team, not try and take a street bike and and a street bike motor and make it whatever. So it should have been done the way it's done now. They were just trying to jump the gap but trying to figure out how to keep the bikes in the grid uh, when the economy was kind of shit. But um, no, they were shit. They were just, you know, a street bike motor and, and trying to make power and putting different electronics. And um, But uh, honestly, the FTR chassis that I rode, was that in 13? It wasn't a bad bike. It was pretty good, honestly. Okay. Yeah, because I heard an interview with you in, in Coda where you were like, yeah, this is the future. And I was like, uh, does he really think it's the future or is it the yeah, future? I, and, yeah. I probably got paid to say that shit. <laughs> I said it was not the future. <laughs> <laughs> uh, let's have another drink. <laughs> yeah. Hey, I want to be conscious a little bit about the time, and I don't want to skip that question. Tell us a little more about uh, boot camp. I've read about it. Jason told me about it. I, I missed the trip when when the group went, and uh, you know, who is it for? How does it work? What can people expect coming out of it? What will they learn? All right. So, uh, how do I explain it quickly? Um, you don't, you don't have to explain it quick, quickly. Just explain it. It's time. kind of a, it's, 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 it's an experience, you know, it's, it's, you're going to come here and learn. You can't come here and not learn. You're going to learn. Um, but I, I learned this shit from Kenya Roberts senior and junior, you know, I mean, I didn't know anything about flat tracking. And then junior and I in uh, 92, we're racing TZ two fifties against each other. And, and we became friends. It's like, Hey, come out to the ranch, come play. Um, I was like, what are we going to do? So we went out there and all we did is dirt track on one hundreds every day. Um, and it was just a way to kind of develop some feel, you know, like understanding how to, how to drift the bike and move the bike and, and, and point it in the right direction and that kind of stuff. Um, so I came back and I started doing that on my own and, I. And I bought this piece of property, uh, actually in 03. And all it was was red clay, built a little track and, and built a shop. And me and my friends would come out here and ride. And then it turned into, I think other people would like to come do this with you uh, from one of my friends. It's like, okay, well, a lot of them are going to be European if they're coming over. Um, so I built the roof. I can't have a rain out clause of like, Hey, come back next week because we're rained out. So I built that big ass arena and then I built the hotel because I kind of wanted everybody to be together, you know, exchange phone numbers and emails and all that shit. Um, we sleep 30. Um, and the amount of times that I've heard this is the best four days of my life, which fucking weirds me out to be honest because i've had some good times i cannot tell you the best four days the best four days of my life i've ever had but people come here 
and say, this is the best four days of my life. And it, it keeps us going just because we do what we do. I, I know that we take it for granted because we do it all the time. Um, but we, we, we teach hundred percent teaching, but it's also, we ride, we shoot guns, we play games at night crud and we drink beer together and we tell stories and it's just, it's a whole atmosphere of kind of togetherness of motorcycle like-minded people. And uh, it, it's awesome. I, I love boot camps. They're amazing. What kind of guns do you shoot? Uh, nine mil. I know there's a 50 uh, count. Because I'm, I'm a SIG guy myself, and I look down on everybody that doesn't have a SIG. <laughs> okay, so I got a couple SIGs, but we're actually sponsored by Glock. Oh, okay. So we, we run Glocks no, on our... Nobody's uh, perfect. Um, but we shoot the 50 cal uh, at the last day. Um, but yeah, occasionally I'll come out with some weird shit, you know, some some full auto and if somebody wants to have fun and it just, you never know, you never, you don't know what camp you're at. And then you don't know what mood I'm going to be in. I might bring some weird shit out. Uh, so it, it's, it's always fun. What's your favorite beer? Man, Coors Light. Keystone. Light. Okay. It's the same shit. I mean, honestly at boot camp, our beer here is Keystone. It's kind of what we drink. Okay. What's your favorite barbecue place in Texas? Franklin? Oh, are you going to Austin for that or are you staying in wherever you are? Man, if I'm going to eat barbecue, I'm going to Rudy's. Okay. You know, it's, it's Rudy's is pretty good. They're everywhere. Yeah. Uh, let's see. Uh, well, I got a stupid question here. Uh, your mancation with Ben Spee seemed to have left emotional scars on him. Did he finally open up to you, or does uh, Team Texas need more bonding? Do you see him regularly, or, <laughs> or did he stop talking to you? No. Uh, it's funny. Like, probably my son's... My son is Hayes. Probably his biggest advocate is, is, is Ben. I mean, he's seen him ride, and... All Ben wants to see is Hayes succeed. Uh, and he's put me in touch with a few guys to like help out as well. So uh, I love Ben. He's awesome. He is. He, I, I have no, I uh, love that guy. He's just awesome. Any predictions for Moto America this year? Uh, I know there's one point between the top two. No. Right? So is, who is it is one it? point right now? Jake, Jake yeah, Gagne. it's one point. Petrucci and Gagne. Gagne and Petrucci, one point between them right now, I think. All and, right, so. and Petrucci just got invited to ride a wild card yeah, for Juan Mir, I think. So now he's got a, he's got some choice to make. Who? Gagne? Petrucci. No, Petrucci, Petrucci doesn't have a choice to make. I mean, Suzuki's not going to be there next year. So I don't know what kind of... What kind of uh, seat he expects to get next year but it, it looks okay, like he's so Motor America. I'll I'll say this. I'll say this. And this this will kind of put it into perspective. 
Petrucci is used to riding on tracks that are just fucking amazing. Like you can crash anywhere. You can do a million mile an hour and crash. And yeah, that's a you'll probably tumble, maybe break a bone or not. U.S. tracks are not like that, right? So there are places you just absolutely cannot crash. So for him to come here and adapt to the racetracks and still be one point, you understand what I'm saying? He's badass, uh, yeah. I mean, everybody said it. It's right a, it's now, amazing. I know Gagne has speed. That, that kid, when he gets going, he, he knows the tracks. He can get going. Um, he looks completely different on a motorcycle than Petrucci. I mean, he's, he's upright, and he, he yeah. just takes that thing right into upright immediately after the apex, and it just shoots out. It, it works. It, it looks kind of you know weird, but it works. Yeah, no, I agree. But I, I would say it doesn't matter. I don't care who wins, but Petrucci hats off for what he's done, coming to these shit tracks and, and actually being relevant. I'm pretty impressed. Okay. Yeah. And, and uh, somebody actually mentioned that Ducati doesn't work well with Dunlops either because it's too stiff of a bike. Is it is it someone or has it been? I'm just preserving anonymity. Oh, anonymity? Okay. <laughs> I don't know anything about that. Dunlop versus Pirelli's, basically. So, so Ben said it was developed, the Bible was developed for, for Pirelli's, which is, you know, he, he's right. I mean, Ducati and, and I, I think Pirelli just, they made tires, especially for, for Ducati's. I mean, that's how they developed their, their tires. And I think the Pentagon had like the first, I think, 255, something like that, tire at the back. So it, it's, a, it's a partnership that, you know, that's been going on for years. And all of a sudden you put it on Dunlops and... It just starts bouncing around because it's so stiff. Yeah, which then go ahead and put it on a Bridgestone or put it on a freaking Michelin, and then you got a different story as well. It's even more stiff. So, uh, but yeah, I, I don't know. I can't answer your question correctly. I don't know anything about it, to be honest. I mean, I know Pirelli's are a bit soft. I know they move around a bit. Um, but yeah, I mean, every, every, every tire company has their own, you know, Stiffness yeah. of what they do, and, and and stuff that works with one bike doesn't work with another bike. I mean, when back when when you were in MotoGP and everybody were raving about the Bridgestones, I put Bridgestones on my Jixer, and they were the biggest piece of shit tires I've ever you know experienced, and they almost killed me. I mean, the front would just go away without any warning, no feel, no nothing, and I just took them out after a couple of laps, and I put back the Pirellis, and I was like, fuck those tires. And, yeah. and, you know, MotoGP were like, yeah, if you're not on Bridgestones, you know, you're not going to win because they're so good. But, you know, it depends on the bike. Okay, so I know exactly what you're talking about. Um, but, and this is, I've done a couple ride days, you know, uh, uh, with Freddie and with Jason Pridmore. And I've done a couple South African things, you know, and at uh, Kailami, but. My first thing I tell everybody, it's like that number on the side of the tire is kind of to protect their ass, like 30 PSI or whatever that number is. 
And I tell everybody, I was like, go take four pounds out. Go, go, go take air out of your tire just to get the tire to move. You know, just, just get the tire to move so you can feel what's going on. And then once it starts moving too much, then you put a little more air in it. But I promise you, you're going to go faster than what you've ever gone because you're going to feel the tire. So all the only way to go fast is to have feel, right? You, you can't go fast if you're on basically rocks. Yeah. You're not, you're, you don't know the limit. Yeah. So let your tire move around front and rear, do both. Let them move around. And then once they move too much, put a little more air in it. Then find the limit, put a little more air. That'll get you to your limit. And man, we have gone down to, Dude, once they went to this 3CM process at at, uh, at Michelin, we went down to like 16 or 17 pounds. I went crazy. Like, because it was the, the tire was so stiff. So, once they went to that new process, which kind of everybody does now, you kind of find the limit of what you can do. And then once you're, once the tire moves too much, increase the pressure, you know, and then if this is what it says on the side of the tire and I have absolutely no fucking clue what the tire's doing, take some air out of the tire to where you know what it's doing. It's simple. You know, and then like most no company will ever tell you that. No ride day folks will ever tell you that because they're gonna get, you know, I don't know, lawsuit or they told me to do it. You know, no, whatever. No, those are those are road road pressures. But the the person yeah. the person that put those uh, slicks on my bike was the the, the track day guy, right? Uh, yeah. And you know he was like, "Oh, those are the best tires," and and they came in wrapped. I've never seen tires that were completely wrapped. <laughs> yeah. And they were like, they're just crap. Yeah, but dude, I'm telling you, we played we played with pressure every weekend. Like, there was never a weekend where it's like, okay, it's 25. Like, we never showed up like that. We just played with it all weekend until you find some feel. Okay, good, good, good. And then once you start going fast, then you increase a little bit. And yeah, you play with pressure. You don't, there's no standard pressure. Uh, and that's most track day folks think they see the guy at the tent. What's the pressure today? Oh, 30 pounds. They put 30 pounds in, but that's not. You have to play with it. You got to test it. Play with it. Yeah, that's that's a good that's a good point. I just I drop I drop it off at the tire guy, and I was like, yeah, what what kind of pressures? What am I what am I riding today? SC twos, SC ones. You know what I mean? Yeah. So, but I'm telling you, it whatever they say, generally, if you take four or five pounds out of both, go out, get your first session in, you'll start to get a little bit of feel of tire movement of what's going on you're going to be more comfortable then you can slowly kind of increase to what you want okay okay wow. that's a great tip yeah so, uh, that's a great plan of, of discussion by the way any advice for track day riders calling yeah no it's it's absolutely true because if you show up and they say put 30 pounds in and all you feel is a fucking rock underneath you you have no understanding of what's going on. Yeah. Prince told me when I started writing. Sorry, go ahead. 
No, I'm saying you just push, 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 and until you try to find some feel, then you crash. Yeah. It's like, fuck, yeah. I didn't feel anything. Yeah, yeah. They just let go, and, and sometimes you feel you, you they let go after they regrip. You know what I mean? And you go like, what happened yeah. here? Yeah, well, go down on pressure, get the tire to move, you start understanding the tire more, then you can increase the pressure. Okay. Bill, I just wanted to say that from now on, you should ask the majority of the questions because I'm pretty fucked up right now. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm bad. <laughs> bad I have to refill, actually. Yeah, I'm about to refill, and I'm about to say sayonara to you dudes because I got to go home at some right. point. Sounds good. Do we have any more questions? All right. uh, that's it. Just uh, We have two I more have questions. Quiz, actually. Go ahead. I have a quiz. I don't know if you remember, Colin, but we've met before. Can you guess where? I'm going to say Team USA as a hint. Oh, Qatar? No, Phillip Island. Phillip Island. When you guys, when you guys, oh, uh, years back. With fucking when, Carrie Andrew. Yeah. <laughs> with Carrie, Bridmore, and the whole gang, we came and did the track day the weekend before, and we hung out, and You yeah. actually came to the Airbnb and talked to us for a bit, and we watched yeah. you guys race that weekend. Oh, my God. Yes. Yes. God, that bike was a big pile of shit, too. Oh, 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 oh. <laughs> relax Dude, there, buddy. Carrie's my guy. Carrie's so my guy. He's building bikes on the track. Carrie's my guy. He's building my new Jixer. He's building my new Jixer. It's going to be fine. You know, you you and I also met before. Here's a picture. I don't know if you remember this one. Back then. Oh, wait, show me again. Where is it? Let me see. Uh, you see it? It's hard to see. It, it went dark. The screen went dark. It went dark. dark. Yeah. Oh, hold on. Here you go. Dude, am I on the back of the bike with you? Yep. Did we at least pop a wheelie or no? <laughs> So, so I have to apologize about that. I was really fucked up. I had about six screwdrivers. This is in the Long Beach uh, motorcycle show. Oh, shit. They were always good times. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And I could hardly see. I was so messed up. And I was like, oh, shit, this is Colin Edwards. Let's, let's get a picture. And you were like wrapping up. And I was like, why don't you go in the back? And you're like, okay, all right, drug dude. <laughs> and we took that picture and I was like, yeah, Colin Edwards, yeah, okay, where am I? That sounds so, like some idea. Yeah. <laughs> all right. So there you go. All right, should we wrap it up? I would say so. Colin, thank all you so much for your time. You yeah. got it, man. Enjoyed it. Good times, good reminiscing. Yeah, thank thank you for being so generous with your time, um, and uh, we sh we should we should find a we should find time to do another episode sometime uh, to hear some more stories. Hey, this is all I do nowadays. Okay, can you see that bike? Yeah, we see with it. No motor, like no motor, wheels off. Yeah, let me ask you something. Can you make can you make it GP shift those dirt bikes? I'm sure you could, but. Because the amount of time that I that I see a bike and I go like, yeah, hey, I want to buy that bike, but there's no way to make a GP shift. And yeah, I'm, like, I'm sure yeah, you could, GP. but no, I mean, no? it's it's straight off the counter shaft, so I don't, I don't. Okay. Yeah. It would be a linkage system. Oh, so, okay. 
All right, sounds good. So thank you for Great. your time, and and we're ending the podcast now. And uh, thank you everybody for listening or watching on YouTube. We have a YouTube channel. Uh, we have we have about two subscribers, but after this interview, we'll have three. <laughs> Might have three. Yeah, because Colin's going to sub- subscribe. Hey, well, send send me the uh, send me the link, and I'll uh, I'll twatter it out. Okay, sounds good. Well, all right, thanks, Colin. All right, right. thank you. (laughs) Bye. Have a great evening. Y'all be good. See ya. You too.